You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark. Uh, we're continuing our series, Mark chapter 15. Um, Jesse asked me to preach on... This is nice. I might not even have to hold this. Mark chapter 15, we're speaking on the, the mockery of Jesus when Jesus was mocked. And uh, if this gets annoying with the mic, I'll hold it. But uh, I actually would prefer not to for a few minutes. So I've been at a bunch of different churches lately getting to speak, and, and it's been a, a great experience. Uh, um, the most annoying part, though, is the different types of mics that you deal with. This is a really odd thing, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's nice to not actually have to hold something or have it grabbing your ear. So a weird thing if you do public speaking. It's a really uncomfortable thing. Mark chapter 15, that has nothing to do with this. Jesus is mocked. As we approach um, Easter and this season, it's one of two particular times in our country where non-religious people um, temporarily turned their attention and focus towards spiritual things, the other being Christmas. And I don't know about you, but it's during these weeks that usually it comes so quickly and it passes so quickly that I typically reflect in hindsight that I wish I would have reflected more during the time. I don't know if anybody else experiences that, but uh, every Christmas I am always saying to myself, I wish I would just maybe be more reflective or take some time, and instead it's typically after Christmas that I look back and think I missed it again. And uh, as we approach Easter, this is another time I would really encourage you prior to um, just Easter really draw into what God is teaching us um, during this particular season of the church calendar. Um, You know, we don't follow a very strict liturgical calendar here at City Lights, but we do want to draw our attention to that, and uh, wonderfully, our text aligns with that in a pretty great way. Let's read together in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. And the soldiers led him, this is Jesus, away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they'd stripped off the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they'd led him out to crucify him. Last week... Uh, Pastor Jesse spoke about Barabbas and how, as we look at the biblical text, we see that so many of the characters that we'd love to not think that we resemble, actually we resemble uh, quite literally. And as we look at this text, it's amazing. Jesus, before his crucifixion, crucifixion, is pulled into this room and about 60 Roman soldiers begin to berate him. They begin to mock him, strip him down, twist together a crown of thorns, putting it on his head, and begin to bow down. Think about the absolute shame in that moment. I mean, that's, it really is outrageous to even consider something like this, where somebody is absolutely, they don't have anything to do with this guy. The truth is, these Roman soldiers, this is probably the first time that they actually ever met Jesus. It's probably one of the first times. Why do we do that? This morning, I want to suggest just for a few moments that while Christ... Uh, is our atonement in a way in that he satisfies the wrath of God. Not only does he do that, but Christ is also our scapegoat. This is interesting. There's different ways that we approach the atonement. The word atonement 
is the uh, word to say that God has made us in right relationship with himself through the death and resurrection of Christ. When we approach that, though, we have to be very, very, very careful that we don't look at it in the uh, way as if God was so angry that he had to kill his son to be happy with us again. Have you ever felt that internal conflict? It's kind of like God, um, maybe let me frame it like this, Old Testament, angry God, New Testament, happy God. The only common denominator of what changed was the middle where God killed his son. And uh, personally, I've never met anybody that kills their son and then is happy after. All right, I'm the only guy. Uh, I've met parents that have said I'm going to kill their son, and then they realize that that's, uh, you can't really say that anymore because you actually get in trouble for it. But what, why? See, what's interesting about this particular text is that it shows us that in the work of Christ, that Jesus is not only absorbing the wrath of God, but he's absorbing the wrath of humanity. Um, Jesus is our scapegoat. I was reflecting on this, and there's only been a few times in my life um, where I was the scapegoat. And there's been multiple times where I've made somebody else a scapegoat. I think we've all been there in one way or another. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I was, we were in this little band type of thing. Not, not with the drums and the whole horns thing. I'm not that coordinated. But I was in this band, and we had a practice. And right before practice, we had this big, big, big curtain. And there was a guy who uh, was just really an idiot. And I can say that because he's not here. Um, <laughs> He pulls down this massive curtain. I mean, like, it's from, like, floor to ceiling and pulls this thing down and it's like, and just rips it. And, like, I'm just playing my guitar, not doing anything. And uh, the, you know, the, the instructor comes in and sees, like, the curtain on the ground. I'm playing my guitar and instantly is like, Jared, what did you do? And I'm like, I'm working on a guitar line here. What it, and just begins to ream me out. And I'm like looking at this and I'm like, I have literally, I had nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. And the guy wouldn't own it at all. He ripped the curtain down. And I'm standing there like, are you kidding me? I mean, are you kidding? Like, how did you not, like at that moment, be like, actually, that was me. So I'm standing there. I'm looking at everybody in the room like, no one's going to stand up in this moment. I'm the guy that pulled down the curtain when all I was doing was holding my guitar. Now, I would love to, to like I said, that guy's an idiot. Um, however, uh, I'm an idiot as well. When I was young, uh, my dad went away overseas for about a week or two, and my mom, this is kind of a goofy story, but uh, it's, it's unfortunately kind of a family story for us. When I was younger, my mom uh, made this pot roast in a um, crock pot, you know, and it had to cook for whatever, like 56 hours or something ridiculous. And uh, my mom was like, you know, this is going to be amazing. I got this recipe, and it's delicious, and I've heard so much about it. So my mom's cooking this thing, and very quickly, the entire house begins to smell like onions. And I don't know about you, but I'm very, uh, when it comes to smell, like, I just kind of get creeped out. Um, you know what I mean? Not the smell of somebody else, but, but myself, I'm kind of constantly conscious of, do I smell in this moment or not? Does anybody else feel like that? Okay. If you don't, maybe you should think about it sometime because uh, the world will be a better place. Uh, just kidding. Kind of. Not at all. So, but what happens is, uh, you know, I'm kind of conscious about this. So my mom's making this thing and, you know, in the first four to six hours, it 
smells, but it's kind of contained in the kitchen, and it's not a big deal, we're looking forward to this meal. Well, by, like, the next morning, I wake up in, uh, for school, and at this time, I'm, I'm guessing I'm in sixth or seventh grade, and um, I wake up, and I realize not only does our kitchen smell, our entire house smells, and it smells horrendous, um, like, just, you know, like, your eyes are bleeding from onions smell. And, you know, I, I remember putting on my shirt, and I'm thinking, like, okay, maybe it's just contained to the house. Well, once I got out of the house, I realized it was into every orifice of my body. My, every pore of my entire body now smelled like this, this beef, whatever this thing was. And uh, I'm also realizing that my, my two brothers, as well, uh, we were at the same uh, school, um, all smell like this as well. So each of us take a very distinct path on how we're going to deal with this smell. Uh, my older brother, uh, about four years older than me, um, I later found he was confident enough to just own the fact of, hey, my mom made a ridiculous meal, sorry I smell. My insecurity as a seventh, eighth grader, whatever I was, I couldn't handle doing that. So my younger brother had the fake polo cologne. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody get the fake polo colognes, those types of things? Terrible mistake. You, you look back at that as a child and you think, like, brute smelled good. And you realize you have 12-year-old kids walking around smelling like they're 75-year-old men. It just, doesn't, it just doesn't add up. You know what I mean? But you're like, brute, this is great stuff. You're like, Phew. Then you look at it, you're like, then you smell somebody later on. You're like, what are you wearing? They're like, brute. You're like, man, I love that at 12 years old. Uh, nevertheless. Um, so I, I, I remember running into my younger brother two years, kind of like just passing in the class, and I realized we smell horrendous. I mean, you couldn't, um, I, I can't even explain how bad. And Joel had some fake cologne. So, I mean, we're putting the cologne on, the Old Spice wipes at the time. I mean, I was bathing in this stuff, hand sanitizer, anything I could do to do this. But what I did was I, there was one kid in my class, and I blamed it on him. And I'm not quite sure how I was able to do that, but the entire day I was like, you smell so bad. And somehow, I'm not quite sure, and uh, I have since repented, uh, I'm not quite sure how, but I was able to somehow uh, push on him everything that was actually my problem. <laughs> and uh, I felt really bad because I think he has a, a still to this day struggles with self-confidence and all other types of uh, internal bondage that I've kind of attached to his life. We've since made up. But uh, I, in that moment, it was funny because we got home and we kind of compared stories of, you know, how did Justin handle it? How did my brother handle it? You know, how did I handle it? And, uh, you know, Joel's kind of ignored it. Justin owned it. And I just blamed it. I was like, who? That kid? You stink today. Although I was the one. And what's interesting is that this whole idea of scapegoating or putting our insecurities on other people actually is innate into who we are and to who we are as humans. Uh, a few years ago, um, I'm sorry, I'll have to reference sports for a few minutes if you're not a sports fan, bear with me. But um, does the name Steve Bartman ring a bell for anybody? Uh, Ryan's like, yes. Uh, there was a, a few years ago, um, if you were a Chicago Cubs fan, uh, we're going to have an altar call for you later. We're going to pray for you because it's been a long time. Uh, there was a curse of the billy goat. Uh, some hundred years ago, there's a great ESPN documentary, even if you're not a sports fan, 
I think you would actually really enjoy this. And there's this, uh, it was the game six, I believe, they were versing the Florida Marlins in the uh, NLCS or something like that. And uh, I got a head nod, so I think I'm on track. And um, there's a, it was the seventh inning, I believe, to the top of my, uh, and the Cubs haven't won in 100 years. You know, and there's, if you're a sports fan or if you're married to a sports fan or have friends like that, you realize that sports is something far more than just, um, like, who wins and who loses. And if you're not a sports fan and you say that to somebody, there's nothing that irritates a sports fan more. Anyone agree? Like, it's just a game. No, it's not. Although it is, but it's not. So Steve Bartman is this um, guy who's sitting in left field right outside the foul line. And as this ball comes, now listen, the Cubs have already messed up so much And a foul ball comes, and like all of us would from the time we're kids, we're trained to reach out and grab this ball. And as this ball comes out to left field, here's Steve Bartman, who just looks like he would get beat up, truthfully. He's got his little hat on, he's got a turtleneck on, right, with another shirt on, he's got big headphones on. Because you know you're serious when you're at the game, but you have to listen to the game while you're at the game. Doesn't make sense. And Steve Bartman, though, reaches out as this foul ball comes, and he actually interrupts the play. And when he interrupts this play, uh, Moises Alou, the left uh, right fielder, throws down his glove and just starts to pout. And is like, are you kidding me? And instantly, the entire crowd begins to erupt yelling, a-hole. There's not, I got to tell the story. So, sorry, you're in church today. Uh, I'm quoting what happened. The entire stadium starts chanting at this, and and they can't figure out who it is. But they know it happened in that section because a lot of people couldn't tell who who it was. Well, next thing you know, outside of the stadium begins to erupt, and a riot breaks out in Chicago trying to figure out who this guy is. They end up having to take him away with security through this back entrance Um, to be able to get, or back exit, to be able to get this guy out because people wanted to kill him. No one knew who it was, and then they began to identify who it was, and he actually literally had to move away from Chicago. This guy, who was the biggest sports fan, like, ever, you know, ultimately doesn't have anything to do, really didn't screw it up. If you look at the game, there's so much that went wrong. But one play... And all of Chicago blamed Steve Bartman, one guy. The entire thing collapses on him. And what's amazing is that there's something in humanity, and and now that's kind of a light story, but we realize that, that this kind of recapitulates itself depending on culture and place. So, of course, we know Hitler with the Jews. If we just get rid of the Jewish people, then humanity will be okay. This happened uh, multiple times. Uh, actually, it happened in our American history with, with, um, with the American Indians, <laughs> which is uh, often we don't realize they were here first. They really were. And uh, we're like, no, we're going to build a big building. You can leave. But we show up, and it's not only that these people are just different than us, but we desire to demonize them. They become the scapegoat. We pin all of our hopes on their Uh, demolishment. If we could just get rid of this particular person. What's interesting about this, though, is that the concept of scapegoat isn't just something that's modern. It actually tracks back to the biblical time 
Leviticus chapter 16, when God commands the children of Israel during the Day of Atonement to take two goats. One of them is to be killed and sacrificed before God, and the other, the priest is to put his hands, Leviticus chapter 16, on this goat and to pronounce the curses of the people of God on this innocent goat and send him off into the desert on his own, a scapegoat. When we look at the work of Christ, it's important that we recognize two things. Not only is Christ our reconciliation to God and that he absorbs the wrath of God that is due us. In case you're new to um, faith or you're re- ex- you know, examining or exploring Christianity, here, here is the gospel in a very quick, um, very quick nutshell. I'm in a nutshell, right? Real quick one. There is a holy, just God, righteous. He is perfect in and of himself, needs nothing. Humanity is created in this beautiful image to reflect the nature of God and to flourish on the earth. But mankind chooses to reject God. In their rejection, God then is separated from them, not in his desire towards to love them, to have good for them, but that God can't fellowship with darkness. But out of God's graciousness offers a way. That way is Christ. And through faith and through that sacrifice, we're united to God. We can Now this is not just, let me be very clear, this is not just a um, mental agreement that we make. Uh, it's like Apple, iTunes, you scroll to the bottom and just click terms, accept, and agree, although you just sold your soul. I'm the only one that does that. I'm sure who, who, nobody reads the terms and conditions. Other than Rich Perry, you would raise your hand at this time. <laughs> just, just because you, I was about to say there is like a .01% and his name is Rich Perry, uh, which I do love. But, but listen, Christianity is, is not about scrolling to the bottom. It's not simply attending church and clicking the, I accept the terms and conditions of this, therefore I'm a Christian. Uh, I'm going to quote somebody that's far beyond my education level, but you can talk to Mike later. Kierkegaard talks about it being a leap of faith, that it has to be, it's not just something separate from me, it, it becomes something that has to be subjective to who I am. That when I look at faith, it's something that I have to personalize. I have to jump into this thing. And it's literally not just something I add to my life, but it has to become, in other words, it's not 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 is Christianity. But Christianity is that by number 11, it reinterprets and recenters 1 through 10. That when I become a Christian, my entire life has to revolve around this work of Christ. Because Jesus, particularly in this text about the mockery of Jesus, we see something so unique that Jesus is not just satisfying the relationship, watch this, between humanity and God, just absorbing the wrath and now you can go to heaven, which is a radical reductionism of what Christianity really is about. But Jesus shows us this, that every other time a scapegoat was chosen at complete random, uh, unwillingly even. A uh, goat doesn't have any sense. It's just kind of, I don't even know, what, what noise does a goat make? They scream. Anyone know what a goat? I don't, they've got to make some noise. Whatever the noise the goat makes, that's about all that it has. A scapegoat chosen at random. But here, Jesus isn't chosen at random. I want you to think through this. What, what is the, and don't break out into tears or anything like that, but what is the, the uttermost shame that you've ever been put through? 
or that somebody has subjected you to. Imagine in that moment, I think you would agree, if you had the ability, in that moment you would have stopped that. I would have. If I have, I mean, I joke lightly about, you know, some kid pulling down a stupid curtain, but I've experienced uh, far more than that that I wouldn't um, share from a pulpit, just because it wouldn't really be a benefit. Imagine in that moment, though, I would want to stop that shame. I would want to stop the mockery. I would want to stop the embarrassment. It's something that I was unwillingly put into. But here in this text, we see something radically different, is that Jesus is not unwillingly mocked. Jesus willingly and joyfully endures the mockery of all of humanity. And Jesus shows us this. That the problem of the scapegoat, this thing inside us that's looking to put our problems on somebody else, is actually the, uh, the, the non-recognition of realizing that the problem of humanity is not outside of us, it's inside of us. That would have been a good time for like a head nod or something like that. I don't care what you do, but that, listen. Jesus shows us in this text, here is the perfect man. This is the perfect God-man who has done no wrong, yet look at what he's subjected to, I would venture to say, far worse than any of us have ever endured. Here's 60 Roman soldiers that strip him down naked, that pull together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, spit on him, and begin to bow down, singing, Hail, King of the Jews. I mean, look at how incredibly... Uh, dehumanizing that is and here's Jesus the perfect human this is Jesus the guy that got it all together and in that moment we also have to recognize that he's not just man he's God and this God man has the ability to stop this if God wants to stop this he can say no more but Jesus willingly comes to this place as Jesse preached us a few weeks ago where he wrestles with taking this cup the wrath of this cup, and he says, I, not my will, but your will be done. He surrenders, knowing that what's going to come to him is complete dehumanizing mockery. Why? Jesus shows us that the problem of the scapegoat is not something that if we just got rid of this race, or if we'd get rid of this sports team, or if we'd get rid of um, this ideology or this political party. Do, do you see the reality of what I'm saying this morning? I hope you do because this happens everywhere. And uh, next political season, uh, it's not just like, hey, you know, I disagree with your philosophy on how we run the country. We demonize the other party. If you're a Republican, then it's like the only answer is that Obama's Antichrist. And it's like, if we just got rid of Obama, if we just got rid of the Democratic Party, then everything would be okay. And it pendulums for the Democrats. I'm sorry I'm frustrating anybody that's running for political office here. I'm just being honest. Is that our whole world revolves around the idea that if I got rid of that person, I would be okay. And what we do functionally in that moment is that we attach our identity to getting rid of someone else. If I just got rid of, um, I'm going to just say this, uh, if we just got rid of the homosexual community, if we just got rid of them, that, that's, a, that's a popular Christian idea. Not in all Christian circles, but if we just got rid of everybody that was like, if we just got rid of the homosexual community, then the church would be fine. Uh, no. 
This is not what we're dealing with. The goal is not to get rid of a philosophy or an ideology, regardless, listen, whether it is not in line with the scripture or if you disagree with it. What this text shows us is that we as humans are so fundamentally broken (laughs) that like the Roman soldiers, we can mock somebody that we don't even know. We are so as humans, so fundamentally twisted that we will preserve ourselves at the utmost cost even if it means crucifying someone else. (laughs) That as long as this preserves me, I will crucify them. But Jesus, not only does he absorb the wrath of God, he absorbs the wrath of humanity. Here Jesus willingly takes on the mockery of humanity, showing us this, that not only is the way to God through Christ, but the way to reconciliation with humanity is through him as well. In other words, the person that you're desperately desiring to kill, I know that sounds really abrupt, but it's true, person that you're trying to just, how can I get rid of this person? How can I get my hands on them in a way that I'm still not going to go to prison? In other words, if it, how many people know that if it, uh, if you wouldn't go to prison for killing somebody, there'd be a lot more murders. Nobody else agrees. Everyone's like, wow, he's really kind of a broken guy speaking to us today. I'm serious. If there was not consequences, how many crimes would you commit? Okay, I'm the only guy here. Everyone else, like, you're, like, kind of sitting next to your wife, and you're like, don't, actually, I would be a murderer, honey. I'm sorry. Like, you know, if it wasn't illegal, (laughs) I'm serious. If it wasn't for the idea that there's some sort of justice system that's keeping us in line, how, uh, how would we actually act out towards other people? Because so much of what we do is actually just this behavioral modification. It's this suppressing of behaviors Why? Because in the end, the only reason we don't want to hurt them is because it would hurt us more if we hurt them. I hope that made sense. Here Jesus shows us that in his death, he shows us that here is the perfect person and humanity still finds a fault in him. That there's never going to be, in our own human ability, we're never going to just all get along on the same page. We're not going to just all bring together this cohesive agreement where the world just loves each other. It's all good. No, because we're too fundamentally broken to do that. It doesn't matter who comes into office. It doesn't matter what sports team wins. It doesn't matter the tax code or structure. It doesn't matter um, if ISIS is active or ISIS is defeated. There's always going to be something that humanity is going to say if we just isolated that people group, we'd get rid of them. Now, let me say this. I'm not endorsing evil or radical militant stuff. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. Is that reconciliation and advancement of God's kingdom on earth only comes when we recognize that the problem is not outside of us, it is inside of us. And the problem is not what color is their skin. The problem is not what is the language that they speak or what denomination they're a part of or what they did to this or that. But it comes when we recognize this, that through the mockery of Jesus, he takes on the wrath of the world. The book of Hebrews says it like this, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, 
That doesn't make sense. Jesus, though, has this vision of a new world, if I can say it. He has this joy set before him that he's willing to endure the worst of humanity, recognizing that through his death, his burial, and resurrection, there's a new humanity, and you and I can be a part of that. The church of Jesus Christ, what you're in today, not the building, the people that you're assembled with, are to be the microcosm of the kingdom of heaven on earth. In other words, as as lofty as this sounds and as dysfunctional as we uh, continue to mess this up, this is the offer that stands there for us, is that when humanity actually sees us, they're supposed to say, that's what heaven looks like. Uh, Let me extrapolate that just for a moment. We have made heaven a destination that we're trying to get to, uh, which is very, it's it's really, we're misplacing our hope. The reason I say that, it's like, um, if you're a Christian, um, heaven is in your future just like getting old is in your future. Uh, You don't have to um, hope for heaven, you're getting old. Uh, That's in your future. It's a part of this. It's included in what we have. But what the scripture teaches us is that heaven is not just a destination that we're going to be whisked away to when, which is interesting because we feel like heaven's going to be the place where everybody that we agree with is there and everyone we disagree with is not there. (laughs) Which is really funny. God's grace is big enough for me, but not you, right? They're definitely not saved, but I am. (laughs) But what is heaven? What is this place? Heaven is where God dwells. And what we see in the last few chapters of the book of Bible, Revelation 21, is that the new heavens and the new earth, that heaven actually comes back here. That heaven is not just something that, if I, I'm not quoting anybody, but I'm quoting myself, screw the world, I'm going to heaven. Just forget it. Just we're leaving, we're getting out of here, that's the, that, that's, that's not what this is about. What it's about is this, that in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that heaven has come to earth. Think about that in the most, whatever, just shake it around in your head for a moment or something like that. The point of Jesus dying and rising again, the scripture calls him the first fruits. It's the early harvest and that's not for an immaterial body. We have, unfortunately, we have these pictures of heaven where we float around on clouds with harps, which that's a miracle if I want to play a harp naked or with a loincloth on, then God definitely is at work because I've got zero desire to sit on a cloud, play a harp, or wear a loincloth. I just said that, and it's being recorded. That's not heaven. Heaven is not about an immaterial place, an immaterial body where we're mystically floating around. I want want us to catch this because as long as our idea of heaven is that, then by default, we give up on the world that we live in. But that's not what this looks like. Heaven is coming to earth when Christ returns, but it's already broken in right now. When someone looks at our lives... I'm not talking about moralism. I'm talking about the reality of the kingdom of God. When when someone looks at our life, they're supposed to be able to say, that's what heaven looks like. As Kevin shared a few moments ago, when we give, it cuts the taproot 
of this materialism. This isn't a money-hungry church that's like, give me your finances, what did you get on your tax report? That's not what this is about. When someone looks at you and you're like, you're giving to a church? Not just to a church, but you're, you're a giving person. Why? Because humanity says exactly what Kevin says. If I just have a little bit more, I'll be happy. If I just get a little bit more, if I get a better job, if I get a better position, what does marriage look like in our world today? If I can just have a, a if my spouse would change or if I could get another spouse, Right? If he would lose a little weight, if she would lose a little weight, if, if she would just be a little more attractive, if she'd be a little bit more um, ambitious, if he would be a little bit more this, if they would be... A, and what we do is we begin to constantly scapegoat with the desire to punish them rather than owning what's actually in our heart. And Christ sets us free from that. Because not only does he absorb the wrath of God, making us in a right relationship with God, but he also absorbs the wrath of humanity. And in that, he creates a new humanity. And this is mind-blowing. And I'm not saying I'm the best example of it. All I see is that if I can shoot for it, I know something's happening. Is that somebody should look at us and say, you know what? You've actually experienced a Savior. Why do you have so much peace in your life? Why are you not so tied to your job? And your employment. Why are you not idolizing this thing? Yeah, that doesn't mean that Christians were supposed to take a vow of poverty. It means that our identity is not attached to material things. It's attached to a resurrected Savior. Why am I attracted to this, you know, if I just got this new car, if I just got this new thing? As Christians, we're supposed to be able to have all of those things without them having us. Person's like, wow, you just got a promotion. And you don't have to be goofy about it, close your eyes, lift your hands, and pray. Or anything like, well, you know, it was him. You don't have to say that. <laughs> you know, actually, I don't even work. I just close my eyes and speak in tongues, and God does the work, you know? <laughs> I thought that was funny. That's not what happens. <laughs> Bob enjoyed it. That's not what this is about. But what, it's, what it is is that the church is the microcosm. It is the the aquarium for the world. The people are supposed to look at our lives and say, that's different. Why, why do you forgive when I would punish? Why do you remain faithful to your spouse when you could leave? Why do you raise your kids with these values and not with these values? Why do you pursue career that's great, but at the end of the day, you said no to that job because it was going to affect your family and this, the blah, 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 blah. And it's at that moment when people begin to realize that freedom and wholeness and identity can never be found apart from God. I know that's a bold claim. I'm willing to make it, though. Jesus sets us free. As we come to a close, I think of Isaiah 53 and the fact that Jesus, this beautiful Old Testament prophecy, is led like a sheep to the slaughter. When you look at this text and as you reflect on Easter, realize that Easter is not about getting your bus pass to heaven with God for eternity. 
Sometimes it creeps me out. We talk about heaven like it's an eternal barbecue campfire with all our friends and family. And I'm like, I don't want to be there. <laughs> I love my friends and family. I don't like barbecuing that much. <laughs> Heaven's going to be great. We're going to get to see everybody. I'm like, Christmas is enough. You know, give me them in small doses. I'm kidding. I actually was kidding on that. I don't have to apologize. I really was. I'm, in, I'm inviting you this morning to take a leap of faith into something that Christianity is not that you just look at from a distance and say, you know what, I come to church, therefore I'm a good Christian. The gospel doesn't let us do that. The, 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 this text doesn't let us do that. Jesus didn't get, I mean, it's so silly for us to reduce this and strip it down to this point where like the whole point of the gospel is so that Jesus could get beat up by humanity so that you could do whatever you want, and then have your sins forgiven. Isn't it amazing how we can take God, who serves us in the gospel, and we can take God and have him serve us in our own idolatry? It's outrageous. Like, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, and as long as I say this prayer before my you know, head hits the pillow, or if I go to church once in a while, or if I take communion then I'm good. And that's just not what this shows us. It shows us that we have to take a complete leap of faith. That to be a Christian is not to come to church. It is to join in him in a new humanity and to join in him with his mission to redeem and renew this world. Mm -hmm.